Amen. Well, good morning. It is a joy to be here with you this morning. What a privilege to preach God's word this morning. Um, This morning, we are going to be in the book of Acts, as you've heard, chapter 4. The last two verses is where we're going to start. That's Acts chapter 4, verse 36 and 37. And we're going to be working through verse 11 of chapter 5. So while you are taking a minute uh, to go there now, I want to start by asking you some questions. Here's my questions. Can God be fooled? Can God be mocked? Can you sin? And if no one else sees it, get away with it. Now I understand in this context here in the church right now, that's a very easy quiz. No, 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 what's next? But there are certain times in our lives and there are certain contexts in which I think these questions become a little bit more potent and a little bit more challenging. There was a time uh, not too long ago that a prominent man in our circles of Christianity, someone who was literally at the forefront and the pinnacle of Christian apologetics, somebody whose ministry was wonderful and people um, heard God's gospel defended and proclaimed This person had a lifelong ministry and right after their death, it was exposed that the majority of his ministry was riddled with heinous, vile, contemptible sin. Some of you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Ravi Zacharias. And if you were like me when you heard this story, you were probably stunned How is it possible that a man who could look to us so much like an example and a follower of Jesus Christ have this double hypocritic or hypocritical life? How is that possible? And and, and maybe you were like me, you longed that it would have just been exposed earlier, that it would not have been allowed to be carried out through the majority of his ministry. How was it that sin was allowed to run rampant his whole life without being exposed? To some of us, and and to me, I'll be honest, it felt like to me when I heard that story that Ravi Zacharias fooled us all, mocked God with his life of Hippocratic sin, and got away with it. cases like this that really challenge us. So I'm going to ask you again, can God be fooled? Can God be mocked? And can you sin when no one else sees and get away with it? You see, in our passage today, we're actually going to be spending the majority of our time looking at a case where God exposes the hypocrisy and sin of two people. And uh, before we get started, uh, if you're attending uh, our church for any matter of time, you know that typically what we do is we provide you with a big idea, all right? Now, this big idea is, it's, it's what I want you to know or what I want you to remember when you walk through those doors and you go into your car, okay? Here's the big idea for our message today. Fear the holy God, for he knows your heart and exposes your sin. Fear the holy God, for he knows your heart and exposes your sin. Now, we, when we come across our story today, we're actually at a really high point in the story and in the life of the church. If you heard Pastor Stephen's message last week, something that seemed too good to be true was taking place. People's hearts were being changed. Lives were being changed. People were having a total paradigm shift in their values and they were experiencing this transition of what they treasured. They were, they were using their possessions for the benefit of others and not for themselves to advance the gospel and the kingdom of God. Some people in the story were actually selling all of their land and giving all of the possessions to the apostles to do whatever needed to be done. 
And when we come across our story in Acts 4, verse 36, we have a case study of exactly this taking place. Let's read it. Thus Joseph, who was called by the, the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This man, Barnabas, had a change of heart. And this has led to a change in his life. Now, I want to point out something really, really uh, just kind of neat here. Um, the Bible does uh, go out of its way to point out a detail about Barnabas. They, uh, the author, uh, Luke, decided to put in that he was a Levite. Well, that's really interesting because we know that up until uh, this point, Levites were not supposed to own land. They were not supposed to have an inheritance of any kind. Why? Because God was supposed to be their inheritance. Now, uh, Numbers uh, chapter 18, verse 20 says this, and the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. This was supposed to be better. This was supposed to be a better inheritance. You don't have earthly inheritance. You have heavenly inheritance. God is your inheritance. But Barnabas, up until this point, was a living and walking example of the opposite. Barnabas walked around as a man who proclaimed through his actions that earthly treasure was more valuable than God. That was what he was an example of. But when he met Christ, when he received the Spirit, when his heart changed, we find him readily coming with what he was willing to disobey God to get before. He's readily coming with it and laying it at the apostles' feet. Everything has changed when he received the Holy Spirit. Barnabas now functions like he was supposed to all along as an example that God is a greater inheritance. Can we just take, take a moment to appreciate how wonderful this really is? God has the power and he is willing to change the hearts of men and women and we see evidence of that happening God has the power to change our hearts. Now, I've, I've heard this said a lot and it's always said cynically. Maybe you've heard something like this. People don't change. Or maybe you've heard, once a cheater, always a cheater. When I've heard these things, I always wanna go, ah! You're so close. People don't change themselves. People don't have the power to change themselves. You're so close. God has the power to change people. We're seeing it here. Barnabas is demonstrating that a changed heart is always correlated with a changed life. We read in James chapter 2, 26, your faith without works is dead. There is no possibility that you can have a changed heart and not have a changed life. How can you tell if someone's heart has changed? They've had a changed life. My sister Kitty, who's here today, is a perfect example of this. When she came to know Christ as her savior, everything about her changed. Everything. Her, the way she talked, the way she walked, the way she condoned her life, Everything about her changed. How did we as a family know? How did I know that her heart had changed? Her life had changed. So Barnabas is, is demonstrating externally with his actions what is really happening internally in his heart. So another way that I could say this is that what is in your heart always bleeds over into your actions. What is in your heart always bleeds over into your actions. And there's a really uncomfortable implication of this. Here it is. Your actions are a great way 
to evaluate your heart. And in today's story, we are going to take a look at one incredibly potent action. How you spend your money. Ooh. <laughs> Have you ever, ever heard th this saying? Follow the money? Why do they say that? Because it's common sense. Wherever somebody's money is being spent always leads back to what they truly treasure. How we use money, how we feel about money, how money gets perceived is a window directly into our hearts. I once heard a pastor say that there is a very strong string attached from the wallet to the heart. Oh, I have to shell out money. Ugh. I, I feel this all the time. Uh, right? Like there is. There's this, this string attached right from your wallet to your heart. And this is not just uh, unique in our passage today. Jesus in Matthew 6, 19 through 21 speaks about this. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart is also. This word heart is going to be very important today. And I'm going to, in a, in a few minutes, expound upon it a little bit later. But, but pay attention to that word. But what I want you to see here is that Jesus is drawing the same conclusion. Where your treasure is, your heart is. You cannot separate the two. So I want to just take a moment. I want to evaluate ourselves. This story tells us that money is an excellent tool for evaluation. So take like three seconds. If you look at the pattern of your spending, the pattern of where you put your money, the pattern of your thoughts throughout the week concerning money, what do you conclude about your treasure? What do you conclude about your heart? God already knows. But, but what would you say if you did an honest evaluation of your heart? Well, um, if you're a Christian here today and you were discouraged a little bit by what you just found, like me when I did this. Take heart. God has the power to change your heart. And if you are a Christian, if you belong to him, he will do it. What does he say in Philippians 1.6? He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion in the day of Jesus. Praise God for his glorious power to change my heart, to change your heart, and that it will be accomplished. Praise God for his glorious work in the hearts of men like Barnabas. Let's go back to the big idea. Fear the holy God, for he knows your heart and exposes your sin. I said earlier, God knows your heart. And it's bad. But he's willing to do something about it. What glorious news. It truly does sound too good to be true, doesn't it? Too good to be true. So then we continue in our story and we get to Acts chapter five, verse one. And we start by reading, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Now, this word but is extremely important, okay? The author has placed it here because he wants us to know that was, what was happening in the previous story is being compared to this story. Okay, there's a comparison that's about to happen, a contrast that's about to happen. And what do we know about the word but? It typically diminishes what comes before it. Let me, let me demonstrate this. Babe, I love you, but. Everybody knows, uh-oh, something's off. There's, there's, a, there's a problem here, right? Well, verse 32 of uh, Acts chapter four, it says, everyone is of one heart and one soul. Chapter five, but. Something's about to happen. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read the story. I'm gonna read the next 11 verses and then I'm gonna break it down for you, 
okay? Here we go. Acts chapter five, verse one. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Let's, let's take a moment and let's sit in this. This is heavy. And yes, Pastor Stephen asked me to preach it. We talked about money and now we're talking about God killing people. It's gonna be a, a hot topic sermon and if you're all willing to talk to me afterwards at all, I'll consider it a win. Um, but as we sit in this heavy moment, let's just stop and let's picture the scene. Let's, let's do that mental exercise of putting ourselves in, in the original audience where this is taking place, okay? Picture what's happening. At this moment, People are coming in and they are laying their treasures down at the apostles' feet. The church is there. The apostles are there. Young men are there. And, and this is probably an intense moment of worship. Oh, those people don't have to go hungry anymore. Oh, praise God, we can, we're going to have a warm place to stay tonight. Oh, there's another one who's, who God has changed their heart. Praise God for what he does in the hearts of men. And then Ananias comes up and people are probably like, oh, Ananias is another one. Praise God for what he's doing in Ananias' heart. They're worshiping and praising. And then Peter speaks. In verse three, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? What was our big idea? Fear the Holy God for he knows your heart and exposes your sin. Peter's being filled with the Holy Spirit right now and God is revealing to him something that only Ananias and his wife should know, right? Verse two says, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid at the apostles' feet. This was a secret. This wasn't supposed to be exposed. Peter isn't supposed to know this. Now, before we carry on in our story, there is a really important detail. I'm gonna take about five minutes to, to just tease this out for you because this is the part of the, the sermon where we could go one of two ways and one is very bad and one is very good, okay? Because we're talking about money and somebody just died over it. So let's talk about what this is not about before we talk about what this is about, okay? In no uncertain terms, this story is not about the actual dollar amount or percentage of what you give, okay? We, we've already read it. God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. God owns everything, and he is not worried that he's gonna run out of resources, all right? He's not worried about that. I would like to propose that what is happening here is far more serious and heavier than a dollar amount or a percentage. 
God is concerned about our hearts. But what have we already seen? Money is just a great open window into the heart. So um, I said earlier that I would expand on this idea of heart. Just to be clear, the Bible does, it uses the term heart not as like an anatomical thing, um, but as the whole of a person, the essence of a person, what, what they truly are, who they truly are, all of them. If we had a percentage or we had a number, this word heart wouldn't have to show up at all in, in my sermon. You could come, you could give whatever the number was or whatever the percentage was, you could leave and God wouldn't have to say anything about your heart. He wouldn't have to say anything about your sin. You could just check the box and move on. So I wanna make a quick connection here. If it's, if it's not about the dollar amount, it's not about the percentage and it is about all of you, if it is about your heart, nothing is off limits. God comes first. Your money, your status, your job, your health, your house, your secret desire, fill in the blank, nothing is off limits to God. And we as Christians, we feel this intensely. Why? Because we have received unmerited grace from Jesus Christ, right? Jesus came and he paid our penalty of sin, which is death. He paid our debt and we did nothing to merit it. Nothing. We don't have a say in this equation. He's ransomed our lives. He purchased them, transferred them from the kingdom of darkness, brought them into the kingdom of light, and our lives are no longer our own. We're not taxpayers in this equation. We don't go to God and say, well, you know, God, you did a lot of this, but, but I contributed, and therefore I deserved these things. No, all of it belongs to God because he purchased all of you. Your life is no longer your own. We feel this as Christians. But remember, remember Barnabas, God coming first in your life, the Lord being the Lord of your life, him being your inheritance is the better blessing. It is the better thing for you and for me Talk about a framework being challenged. Now, if, if you go to our church, you know what I mean when I say framework. Um, if this is one of your first times here, when I say a framework is being challenged, I'm just talking about everybody comes to a topic or a, a body of information with already a, a framework or a structure of their preconceived notions. It's impossible for you not to have some form of thoughts or preconceived notions, right? And we call that a framework or a worldview, right? How you view things. The world does not view money this way. That God would be a better inheritance, that's a framework challenge. But the majority of the Old Testament is God demonstrating to us and to his, his people, the Israelites, exactly this. You are freed from oppression when he is your God. You win battles when he is your God. You are fed food and sustained in the wilderness and in the suffering when he is your God. But in order for him to be your God, he must function as your God. I want this to be cl very clear to all of us. This is not about a dollar amount. This is about a heart issue. And so I'm gonna pull out real quick just some, some supporting texts, the most important one being right in our text, all right? Verse four, Peter says to Ananias, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Peter's like, Ananias, this was your land. This was your money. You've done something in your heart. It's right there in the passage. Luke wants us to know this is a heart issue. Jesus himself had this very same opinion when it came to money. If you look at Mark chapter 4, 41 through 40, 44, it says, 
And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums of money. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. It's pretty clear. Jesus is looking at the heart. It's not about a dollar amount. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I can't help but wonder, was Paul thinking about our text today when he wrote this? He might've been. So to be clear, I hope I've convinced you, God's concerned about our hearts not about a dollar amount and not about a percentage. And if you're thinking, oh good, God is not after my money. I'm gonna respond with, no, he's not. He's after all of you. He's after your heart. So then, hope you're convinced. If that's not what this story is about, what is this story about? What's the problem? Here it is. I'm gonna propose that the problem here is that Ananias and Sapphira's hearts are not right before the Lord. First, we're gonna look at four things that are not right, okay? The first one, they've lied. Verse three says, Ananias, uh, Peter says to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Oh, this is interesting. Ananias has lied to the Holy Spirit, but Satan has filled Ananias' heart. Now, this is, this is not actually a, a shocking thing if Satan has filled someone's heart. Satan is commonly known as the father of lies. You've may, you may have heard that. When anyone's heart is filled with Satan, lying and deception is always the result. When anyone's heart is filled with Satan, lying and deception is always the result. But then we go on in, in verse four and we see, ooh, this is, a, this is a contrived lie. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? In other words, Ananias and Sapphira planned out this elegant lie between themselves. They've contrived it. And if we just look back at the, the context of what's happening, everybody is coming in line, everyone who is in the line is giving all of the money. That's just what's assumed is happening. Ananias and Sapphira want to look like something they're not. Ananias is in the line. But I wanna take a moment to appreciate this. This is so cool, okay? This, is, this, this blew my mind when I first realized it. God is bringing darkness and deceit and sin into the light. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit in order to see what is in Ananias' heart. So Peter has, has the Holy Spirit in his heart. Who does Satan, or who does Ananias have in his heart? Satan. This is a clash between the Holy Spirit and Satan. There's a showdown happening here. We already, I already read the story. We already know how it works out. But let's just, let's just take a moment to appreciate something. We've already learned in the book of Acts that no obstacle overcomes the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who has been named as this next obstacle? Satan. We know the rest of the story. We know that Satan does not overcome the gospel of Jesus Christ in this moment. What a neat, neat observation, right? But let's just take a moment to evaluate our hearts. Let's just do this, do this yourself, evaluate yourself, ask yourself the question, am I lying to the Holy Spirit? Remember our big idea, he, he knows, he already knows, he knows your heart. But is there a way in which I am lying? Nobody else knows, just God and me. Second, 
They're not just being a, a liar. They're being a very specific type of liar. What are they being? Hypocrites. They're hypocrites. They're being, they're being these people who want to look a certain way. They want to appear more generous than they really are. Jesus has really strong statements about hypocrites. Matthew 15, seven through eight, he's speaking to religious people. And he says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, their actions, but their heart is far from me. In this moment, to everyone else, the actions of Ananias and Sapphira look like they're close to God. But God knows their heart is very far from him. And this is a problem for the Lord. Nobody else knows, but he does, and it's a problem. Imagine, and, and we can go back to our intro with Ravi Zacharias. Imagine the damage that could have been done had God not been gracious in exposing this sin in their life. I don't know if this would have happened, but I think it's possible that uh, had God not done this, Ananias might have been elected as an elder or a pastor of the church. Why do I say that? One of the qualifications we see in Titus and Timothy about a pastor or an elder is that they are not a lover of money. Had this not gone exposed, there's a really good chance people would have looked at Ananias and said, that's a man who doesn't love money. He traded his entire uh, field, all the prophets, and laid it at the apostles' feet. He might be a good choice. So an application again, let's just stop, evaluate ourselves. Is there an area of your life that you are currently being a hypocrite? God knows. Maybe even a little bit more scary, the Bible's very clear, one day all of our sins will be laid bare and exposed. So is there an area in your life in which you are currently being a hypocrite? Third, third thing. Ananias and Sapphira are idolaters. They have hearts that treasure something more than God. The word opportunistic comes to my mind, right? Hey, look at this. There's this new movement happening. There's this thing going on. We can elevate our status in the church. We can make everybody look at us and see us a certain way when we're not that way. And we can keep our treasure too. We can have our cake and eat it too. All it involves is a little lie. No one's gonna know, only God. That's it. I'm gonna just propose that if you're willing to break God's law, if you're willing to break God's standard to get something, that's the thing that you love more. That's the thing that you treasure most. If you're willing to lie to get something, you have become an idolater. That has been put in the place of God. This is disordered love. This is idolatry in the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira. So here's the application. Evaluate your heart. We are talking about a really hot topic here. We're talking about money. The church isn't supposed to do that today, right? Do you have an idol that is in the place of God? Fourth and finally of the four problems, we've had lying, we've had hypocrisy, we've had idolatry. I'm gonna propose that this fourth one is actually for this story, the biggest problem. They have hearts that do not rightly fear God. As I asked you all to evaluate your heart about lying, hypocrisy, uh, and idolatry, I suspect that like me, you evaluated your heart and you found something that you didn't like. You found something that you were like, oh, mm, this might be a problem. How you respond to your sin makes all the difference. 
When your sin is exposed before a holy God, you have two options. You can tremble before the holy God and repent of your sin, or you can blow him off and proceed in your sin. How you respond makes all the difference. Whether or not Ananias and Sapphira were Christians, Ananias and Sapphira knew who God was. They knew they could not pull the wool over his eyes. They knew that they could not fool him. And they were okay with it. They did it anyway. What did we read today in Psalms 50? Crystal read in verse 19 through 22. This is God talking. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. Oh, that sounds really familiar. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver you. There is a rightful and healthy fear that we are supposed to have before God. I've actually preached on this concept before, the fear of God. Some of you may hear that term and you're like, I don't like that term, I understand. Let me just put some quick bookends on that discussion. When we're talking about the fear of God, we are not talking about an abuser. God will never abuse anyone. He will only do what is just and what is right or what is gracious. No one is going to get from God something they do not deserve, okay? We're not talking about the fear of an abuser. We're talking about the fear of what is unholy coming into the presence of what is holy. We're talking about the fear of what is infinite being in front of what is finite, We're talking about the fear of what is limitless coming into the presence of what is limitless in its power. That's what we're talking about here. There's an appropriate response to fear. And this is the response of the church. The end of the church in verse 11, uh, the end of our passage in verse 11, it says this, and a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. This was the intended response. This was the right response. So let's go back to our big idea. How does it start? Fear the holy God, for he knows your heart and exposes your sin. Let's do the evaluative process again. But this time, I want to ask you, in light of your sins, in light of what God has exposed in your life, do you repent Or do you proceed one or the other? Do you have the rightful fear when you come into the presence of God Almighty? And when you recognize his eyes, see all. I'm really hoping at this point that we see the fruits of a heart that are not right before God are not good. They produce lying, They produce hypocrisy, they produce idolatry, and they produce a total lack of fearing God in the midst of these things. I wish wish we were done there, but we've we've got one more thing before we close, one more really big revelation of this story. Because there's something more here. The accusation is lying, okay? Peter accuses Ananias and Sapphira of lying. But who does he say they are lying to? Verse three, who's he say? The Holy Spirit. Now, we already did the exercise. Remember, the apostles are there. The church is there because they're responding. Those young men are there. They've clearly lied to everyone. They've clearly lied to the apostles and everybody there. They've tried to fool everybody there. But Peter doesn't say you've lied to us and to the Holy Spirit. He just says you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Why does he say that? Because of verse four. 
Peter, at the end of verse four, says, you have not lied to man, but to God. This idea that that this would be a sin, not against the people present, not against man, but only God, only works if the Holy Spirit is God himself. This would then be consistent with Psalms 51 verse four, where the psalmist David says, against you and you only have I sinned. We know that David wrote that after he murdered people. Excuse me? You, against you and you only, God? That doesn't sound right. You killed people in cold blood. Why does that work? Because all sins eventually get taken to the higher court of God. All sins are accountable to him. And so we see in this passage, this, is, this text holds an incredibly crystal clear, profound truth that the Holy Spirit is God himself. Let me walk you through the evidences of this and, and, and may this just kind of blow our minds. You get verse three, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Verse four, you've lied to God. Verse five, when Ananias heard these things, verses three and four, he fell down and breathed his last. Only God has the power to give life and to take it. The Holy Spirit is demonstrating his authority as God to take life. He's showing this is not a judgment of man. This is a judgment of God Almighty. And then we go on in verses 7 through 10. Ananias has already died and now his wife comes in and after an interval of about three hours, she comes in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. In verse nine, Peter says something very interesting. He says, how is it that you have agreed to what? Test the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord. Does that sound familiar to anybody, this testing God? To me, that sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 6.16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. What's even more interesting about this is that Jesus uses this same concept when he is being tested by Satan. Now, what did I set up earlier? This is an instant that we're talking about right now where it's the Holy Spirit, God, versus who? Satan. Back when Jesus is being tempted, it's Jesus the Son, God, versus who? Satan. The same idea is coming up again. Do not test the Lord your God. Don't do it. So go back to our big idea. Fear the holy God. Do you see that word play now that I did? We're talking about the Holy Spirit being God. Fear the holy God for he knows your heart and exposes your sin. Now, I just want you to imagine for a second what this revelation must have been like to the people, okay? Um, the Israelites would have known that God's presence dwelled among, among them within the tabernacle and later on with, with them now uh, in the temple. They would, they would have known that, but there, there would have been degrees of separation. There, there, there were these, yes, God's presence is with us, but there's cleansing, there's priests, there's a curtain, there's a separation. And in this moment, that holy God who was separated from them is now, oh my goodness, the same God dwells directly in our hearts. Oh, my goodness. We've already seen up until this point that this truth comes with fantastic power. 
Miracles happen when God dwells within his people. Lives are changed. Lame men walk. But with great power comes great responsibility. I now know why I like Spider-Man so much. With great power comes great responsibility. Right? He's within your heart. This is a fearful matter. This is a serious matter. God has not changed. In fact, in this story, God is setting a precedent. This is really important. This is probably the second thing that if after the big idea, I'd want you to know, this is it right here. Ready? God is setting a precedent for the church. The Holy Spirit is God and God has not changed. The Old Testament, we've got examples of this. Uh, when people approach God the Father incorrectly, they are consumed, they are struck dead, they are executed. One uh, story I found in particular, uh, I, I won't have time to go through it, but um, the parallels here are uncanny. The story of the Joshua and the battle of Jericho, when you get to Achan and his sin, Achan comes across the treasure and he takes it and he lies about it. He's not supposed to have it. And then what does God do? God exposes Achan's sin. And Joshua actually says to Achan, why have you lied to God? Achan included his family in the sin. Achan was killed for his sin. God has not changed. It is the same God. We see this truth with, with God the Son, with Jesus. How you approach God the Father is a matter of life and death. And how you approach God the Son is a matter of eternal life and death. It's a matter of spiritual life and death. Jesus says that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. No one can approach that holy God, the Father, except through him. You have to understand this. If you are not a Christian, please hear me. If you are a Christian, let this truth ring true, true, true in your heart. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin when he took it. And he died with it on the cross. He nailed all of our sin to the cross. And what did he give us in return? He gave us his clean, holy righteousness and wrapped us in it so that now we can approach this holy God the Father and stand before him holy, blameless, and unconsumed. Amen. Amen. How you approach God the Son is a matter of life and death. And what is our passage today showing us? How you approach God the Holy Spirit is a matter of life and death. I'd like to close here and I'd like to just give two applications. I'd like to talk to uh, two groups of you here. First, for the non-Christian who is here, in a group this size, you always just assume that there's at least one person here who has not accepted Christ as, as savior and as king. How you approach God has eternal consequences of your life and your death. If you have not turned from your sins and turned to Jesus Christ, your sins are still on you. As we've learned today, God is concerned about your heart and he takes your sin very seriously. God sees, God knows, and God judges sin. If you don't have Jesus as your savior, then you don't have his royal robes of righteousness around you. You will die one day and stand before this glorious, holy, perfect, and just God in your sin and you will be unholy before him. And we know that what is holy always consumes what is unholy. How you approach God matters. It's a matter of life and death. But Christian, 
This passage is ultimately for us. This warning is who? To the believers. Who does the fear come upon? The church. I've already asked you, are you, is there an area in your life that you're lying? Is there an area in which you are currently a hypocrite? Is there an area in which you are an idolater? But the bigger question is this. What is your response when God exposes your sin? Do you lack an awareness that all your deeds are done in the eyes of a holy God? I have been incredibly convicted as I've prepared this message. Incredibly so. I do not live my life all the time as if it is God who sees and as if it matters most what he perceives. I don't. God sees, God knows, and God exposes. You know, we talked about at the beginning, Ravi Zacharias. You want to know the truth? Ravi Zacharias didn't get away with anything. God did expose his sin to us here on earth. His ministry is done. God did not let that go without being uncovered. But ultimately, Ravi stood before a holy, just, and righteous God, and his sin was dealt with, either in the blood of Jesus or in the eternal damnation and separation of himself from God forever. But Ravi's sin was dealt with. Let us all Examine our lives. May we fear the holy God for he knows your heart and he exposes your sin. I'm gonna pray. Lord, um, you are a holy God. Thank you, Father, for the hope of Jesus. It is a frightful thing to stand before a holy God, but when clothed in his righteousness, it is a wonderful thing. God, thank you that we saw that there is a hope for men's hearts to be changed. Thank you for the working in people's hearts like Barnabas. And thank you for your graciousness in exposing the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Lord, it is my hope that myself and everyone who hears this would have the right fear of you, the holy God, that we would recognize you know our hearts you expose sin. May we have the right posture of repentance before you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. I pray these things in his holy name. Amen.